0: Good evening, folks. If you will take your copy of God's Word and open to 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24, while you're turning there, I feel like I have to just tell you, I have a, an uncle who, he's one of those guys, he, basically, he only really eats meat and potatoes and bread. And he loves bread, and he'd always talk about bread. And he would—he didn't really cook that much, but he would bake rolls, and he was really into it. Well, that was his favorite hymn. He always would say, "This is my favorite hymn when the roll is caught up on her." It's a true—it's a true story. I can yeah, I confirm. Which continues with my thesis that there will be a lot of gluten in heaven. 1 Samuel 24. On Sunday morning, we began our study together uh, as a a whole church talking about this chapter, 1 Samuel 24, which tells of an episode in David's life that is uh, becoming pretty familiar to us. I, I know that for me, before I studied this book, I did not realize how much running and how much danger and how many threats were involved. In David's time in in the wilderness, but David is still on the run from King Saul And even though David has been running from Saul for several chapters The episode here in this chapter is a little bit different because David finally has the opportunity to get his hands on Saul his enemy Let me just refresh all of our memories. I know it's only been a couple days, but I know we weren't all there On what took place in verses 1 through 7. We saw at the beginning of the chapter that David and his men are hiding safely in a cave, and then to their surprise and their delight, King Saul comes in, unsuspecting for some creature comforts. I didn't explain this too much on Sunday morning, but verse 3 tells us that Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, most scholars agree that this, mean, this is a euphemism that meant he was going to the potty. It literally means to uncover his feet. So that's what, that's what was going on. And so David had the chance to kill Saul once and for all. But we're surprised to see that David does not kill Saul. Saul. He's not willing to do that because Saul is the Lord's anointed. So instead, somehow David sneaks down and he cuts off a piece of his robe, which we've seen is a very symbolic action. It represents a transfer of power. The robe is royal, and so it represents the kingly power. And we know that we're to interpret that action, the cutting of the robe, as being sinful Because that's how David interpreted it. He said in the text that his heart struck him. Even after showing incredible mercy by not cutting a body part off of Saul, he felt bad and his heart struck him for cutting a piece of his robe off. And we, we figured out that that's because he was acting in unbelief. Though on the one hand he showed his enemy mercy, on the other hand he sinned against the Lord by by trying to take matters into his own heart and his own hands, by maybe in a sense forcing the hand of the Lord. And we saw on Sunday this challenged us on several fronts, and we'll see how this connects together tonight, but it reminded us of the central place of trials in the life of the believer. God has a long, well-established history of using our problems and our difficulties to establish his servants for usefulness. If you study church history, if you read Christian biography, you will see that the most useful men and women and the most godly men and women seem to have the hardest lives. God uses our suffering to prepare us. It's true for David. David was a growing believer, and we saw he had a very sensitive heart that compelled him to show mercy even to his enemies, but even sensitive enough to see ways he wasn't trusting the Lord. But I mentioned on Sunday, I didn't really explore it, I mentioned that so often our trials come in the form of relationship problems, relational difficulties. If you think about it, most of the tests in David's life came in the context of his relationships, most notably his father-in-law. Okay, so no show of hands if you have problems with your father-in-law or any other in-laws, but that's what's going on for David. And we saw that David actually gave us an early picture of Christ, this extravagant, undeserved, radical, mind-boggling, head-scratching mercy. He showed mercy to his enemy, even while being treated unfairly. And that's the theme that we're going to explore in more detail tonight. Because that is the key if you are going to be in any kind of relationship with another sinner. Okay? Because sin, can we just say, has strained all of our relationships. Now, I'm not saying that all of our relationships are terrible. I know that relationships are one of the greatest joys Of the human experience. No matter what's going on in your life, we've all been blessed by friendships and and the role of husband and wife and father and son and parents and, and friends and even employee friendships. doesn't mean that all of our relationships are terrible, but we can all say that our relationships are definitely prone to dysfunction. Husbands and wives bicker, siblings are selfish, children disrespect or even stop speaking to their parents. Sometimes we're talking about really minor, kind of everyday stuff, stuff you deal with often. But sometimes it's huge and relationships totally break down. Think back, I mean, if you could think back over all your relationships in your life. I mean, haven't you experienced discord along the way? I mean, if you really think about it, there, we probably all have relationships that are in the past that are vended because of some problem or some conflict is there anybody you don't talk to anymore anybody you avoid perhaps you fear a fight every time you're around a certain person right holidays are a chance for this (laughs) are you ever reminded of how weird people are and how relationships can be hard you see sin has made relationships very very hard And it's been this way from the beginning. It's really one of the first contexts, the first consequences of sin is Adam and Eve started fighting, right? Relationships are hard. But even if you haven't experienced some catastrophic relational dysfunction, I think we can all pretty quickly say that at some time or another, we've all had some pretty bad relationship experiences. Sometimes it's mostly the other person's fault. Right? Like 99% of the time. Right? Sometimes it's the other person's fault mostly. Sometimes it's mostly our fault. It's amazing how we remember the former. But how many times do you find yourself in a position as a believer where you're trying to figure out how do I act godly in this? I hope that's the question you ask in your life. So you got a problem in this relationship. How do you act godly? Godly. What would Jesus do, right? How, how would God call you to respond in this relationship? Well, the Bible makes it clear that whether you are the sinner or the victim, whether you are the guilty or the one who has been sinned against, God is calling you to be holy. Just because someone sins against you, that does not get you off the hook. Can be so tempting to think that. And in fact, for us as believers, what we saw on Sunday, we can apply the promises we have to tr- about trials, we can apply those truths to our relational trials. Right? In other words, God is up to something in your hard relationships. He has an agenda. He is using that other messed up person to change you messed up person, right? That's how he works. In other words, and I hope this is a comfort to you, all of our conflicts, all of our arguments, all of our tiffs, all of our offenses are opportunities to glorify God and they're opportunities to change. And what we often fail to recognize is that when people sin against us, God is actually giving us an incredible opportunity to act like Christ. And to show the love of mercy of Christ to everyone that's involved. And before we read this passage and get to the main idea, perhaps an illustration will help bring this home to us. There's some times where the words and deeds of a, of a person, of one person, can affect everyone around them, particularly in a bleak situation. We see this all the time, right? You ever hear on sports broadcasts, they'll talk about, oh, he's such a leader on the defense, right? I'm like, what do you even mean by that? He's such a leader in the locker room. All right, but we know what they mean. Like one person can can bring out the best in others, right? You may be down and, and one person can rally. Rally them to, to hope. But this is, you could also see it in something like the Civil Rights Movement, where Martin Luther King challenged the minds and, and brought about major change in a nation, speaking light and hope into a bleak situation. But this is especially powerful when one person moves into a, a, a situation that is extremely chaotic and even hopeless, And brings hope. I read an account recently of an incident that took place during World War I. I think I've told part of this story before. When a beautiful lead soprano singer from the Berlin Imperial Opera. She came to the front lines of the war in 1914. It was December. It was Christmas time. It had been snowing. And you have this beautiful celebrity, angelic-like singing uh, woman coming out to the lines where she was actually within the range of the enemy's gun. She could hear the enemy even talking across the line. And she came because she was there to try to provide hope to the troops. In a bleak situation, they were cold, they were hungry, they were in danger, they were away from their families on Christmas, right? And she came and she sang. And she sang so loudly and so beautiful that it transcended the circumstances, and all the people of the all the all the soldiers who were there were just absolutely mesmerized. But her voice traveled across no man's land to where enemy troops could hear her as well, and that song actually led to a several day truce during an active war where enemies played soccer together, right? Her, she spoke hope and light into bleak, the bleakness of war and transformed the situation. I think that this illustrates what God is calling us to do in our relational conflicts. To be the soprano singing in the midst of war of God's grace and his mercy and his goodness even when bullets are flying, even when you're being attacked for no good reason, to speak and act in such a way that you can infuse blessing into relational chaos. What better place is there to put the gospel of peace and the gospel of reconciliation on display than in the midst of dysfunction? What's a better context for it, right? We're talking about the God of of reconciliation. Isn't it great that we magnify him in the midst of situations where we need reconciling? That's what we can do. So this brings us to the main idea, and then we'll read the text. David's personal experience of the mercy of God changed the way that he treated other people. It necessarily changed the way he treated other people, especially his enemies. Tonight, as we study David's interaction with Saul, we'll actually see a wonderful example of the ministry of a peacemaker. Paul called this the ministry of reconciliation, which is given to all who have been reconciled to God. The ministry of the peacemaker, which God has called each one of us to in Christ. Let's look now at this text. For time's sake, I'll just start reading in verse 8, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And Saul looked behind him. David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who said, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. Some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 11, see my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. And may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom is the king of Israel come out? And whom after do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judged and give sentence between me and you, and see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is, your, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You're more righteous than I, for you've repaid me good, whereas I've repaid you evil. And you've declared this day how you've dealt with me well, that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. And now behold, I know that surely you will be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. So David swore to Saul and Saul went home and David and his men went up to the stronghold. Let's pray together. Father, we've read your word. Now press it onto our hearts, not just so we would know it, but that we would actually live it. Help us be like Jesus, a reconciler with his enemies. Lord, I pray that the words that are spoken tonight and the words from your mouth would be pressed into our hearts so that we would speak mercy and hope and grace into our relationships. I pray, Father, you would give us courage to do that and for new hope and new reconciliation to come. So, Father, let my words fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. Just let your word remain, and let it bear fruit in our lives, we pray. We ask this in your name. Amen. I'd like to spend most of our time tonight talking about the way of a peacemaker. We could spend a lot of time talking about this, and we don't have a lot of time, so I'll have to to go quickly through some of this. But I want you to be thinking in terms of the ministry of making peace. Which Paul speaks of often in Corinthians. The way of a peacemaker. David's actions with Saul show us what it looks like to have a life that's been transformed by mercy. It shows the outworking of a life that has experienced God. God. You see, you can't experience the life-giving, heart-transforming mercy of God without being changed. If you haven't been changed, you haven't experienced God. It produces change. And that change will inevitably, it must show up in our relationships. That's, I mean, you remember the the second commandment. Jesus sums up the whole Bible. Love God, love people. That's it. Right? He sums it all up. So it makes sense that the way that we love God would, uh, would impact the way that we love people. Now, this is most often seen in our hard relationships. Not the easy ones. During the hard times, not the easy times. I read this morning in my personal Bible reading, Luke chapter 6. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Man, I could preach that. Y'all got time? No. Well, I won't. I won't uh, just a little. Okay. It means that there's benefit for loving those who don't love you. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. When you love those who love you, you're not doing anything special. You're not displaying the love of God. You're displaying the love of the world. No big deal. Sure, God's love can be seen when you love people who love you especially within the church, right? But most often, God's love is highlighted and magnified when we love people who are sinning against us. If we look closely at this passage, we'll notice that David's demonstration of Christ-like mercy, which we talked about on Sunday, was more than just not killing Saul, as significant as that is, but it was also in his ministry as a peacemaker, By considering David's actions, I think we have for us in this text a model for how to extend the mercy of Christ to the very people we find ourselves in conflict with. So I'd like to invite you to notice seven steps that David took to be a peacemaker. Now, I'm just going to give them to you in the order that I think they appear in the text. Okay, so they're not particularly in order, but they do seem to have a logical flow. All right, seven steps... Of a peacemaker. Number one, David spoke to his enemy. Verse eight, afterward David arose and went out of the cave and he called after Saul. Why did David go after Saul? I mean, wouldn't it be easier to just avoid his enemies? Now, I know there's much more going on in this passage, there's a lot of reasons, but wouldn't it be easier just to avoid him? I mean, isn't that your experience? Isn't it easiest? To avoid your enemies. An enemy might be too strong of a word for you. I'm talking about the people you don't like. The people who've hurt you. The people who've wronged you. It's so much easier to avoid them. You might find yourself living with your enemy. Or married to your enemy. And isn't it easier to just ignore? Or give the cold shoulder? Or the silent treatment? So often our relationships break down so much that we lose heart and we just kind of stop trying and we might consent to live together and raise kids together and you know share food and houses and stuff but we're not really trying at the relationships we we might just kind of agree to disagree or not even talk about the real problems but it's far more loving to stay engaged to speak to keep moving towards each other that's the language Haley and I use in our marriage we talk about okay are we moving towards each other consist- consistently no matter what's going on and there's all sorts of different circumstances and situations that we could apply this to but but generally speaking we are called to engage not avoid our difficult relationships Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18 verse 15 he said if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. So part of that is communication, right? You got to speak, you got to talk with one another, which means that you can't run away from your relational problems. It's not what Christ did. If He had run away from our relational pro- His relational problems, we'd all be in hell. There'd be no reconciliation. Christ moved towards his enemies, and we should do the same thing. David spoke. A second step that David took is that we should model is to go humbly. Look at verse 8. As soon as Saul turned, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. I mean, remember what's going on here, all right? I know this is a Bible story, which means it's got that kind of mystic dust that settles on us when we have like, yeah, I've heard that before. This guy was chasing David with 3,000 men, right? This is... That's serious, right? That's really serious. It's hard to remember that. How in the world could David bow down to this murderer, this tyrant, this terrorist, right? Remember, this guy had just murdered babies. This is the man that David had been selected just to replace. He was so evil. How in the world could David do that unless David had a heart of humility, Unless he had cultivated his heart in humility. You see, so often we assume that the sins of others release us from our God-given responsibility. We think that we're permitted to sin in response to sin. But when someone sins against us, this does not give us an excuse to sin against them or to sin against God. The wife perhaps refuses to respect and submit to her sinful husband. The husband refuses to be sympathetic to his nagging wife. The parent yells at the the defiant child. All examples of how we sin in response to sin. David, however, went with a posture of humility and continued to respect Saul. Not because Saul was respectable. He wasn't. But because God had placed him in that position. He placed him in a position of honor and authority in David's life. We could explore that much more, but I'll leave it to you to consider in more detail. David went humbly. A third way we see David being a reconciler is he went with gracious speech. Look at verse 9. David is confronting Saul and he says, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Okay, now keep, keep the whole story in mind. Saul has openly and publicly and regularly committed himself to murdering David. And yet David is like, hey, why did you listen to these guys? It's like as if it's there, as if they're the ones to blame, right? Talk about a generous interpretation. You talk about giving the benefit of the doubt, right? David approached Saul with the most gracious, Speech imaginable given the circumstances, right? I mean, I'd be yelling, "Hey, you sleaze bag!" right? Like, I could have whatever. Yet, yet this is where we go wrong so often, isn't it? We sin in response to other people's sin with our words. We address the sins of others in anger with sharp accusations, with stinging criticism, with cruel, penetrating, biting, forest fire kind of words. We do it from a posture of self-righteousness. You're the problem, I'm not. Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Peacemakers move into hostile situations With soft words. Not stirring up anger, not provoking, not saying everything that could be said, not pointing out everything that is true from your perspective, but with soft words. David used the most anti inflammatory speech I can imagine in this situation. He was speaking to him in mercy, he was speaking with words of grace. Which brings us to a fourth step. And this is so helpful for us in our conflicts. David refused to sin. He refused to sin. How powerful this is. In verse 10, we hear of David's resolve to remain above approach. I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. And when I read this, it reminded me of Job saying, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I will not look lustfully at a woman. I'm committing to do this. I'm not going to sin. I don't, I don't, what happens in my circumstances, I'm committing not to sin. Oh, For men and women who would walk with God, committing to holiness. How different would your life be? David committed not to sin. Yet it is so difficult to maintain self-control when we're mistreated. Is that not the hardest? David had been dealing with this, not for a night, but for months. Maybe even years. And it is still unresolved. But David had resolved, it does not matter how long this goes on, it does not matter what this guy does, I will not sin against the Lord. Oh man, that gave me courage to read that. Because I need courage in my relationships. Brothers and sisters, set your heart on pleasing the Lord. Focus on obeying yourself. Not obeying yourself, but focus yourself on obeying And let God's word be a light to your feet and a lamp to your path. Psalm chapter 4 says, Be angry and do not sin. My wife and I just read verse 5 the other night. And it struck us both. Offer right sacrifices. In other words, obey. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Obey. Obey the Lord and leave it to him. Part of this means that we have to be incredibly careful with the counsel that we're willing to consider. I'm not talking about professional counsel, that that applies, but I'm talking about any advice or counsel that other people give you. Just because a trusted friend or a parent or even a pastor recommends a particular response, that does not mean that it's biblical. Did you know that? Just because I say something doesn't mean it's biblical. It's only biblical if it's biblical. It's only biblical if it's in the Bible, right? Evaluate everything I say. And evaluate what others say. In order to obey, David had to refuse the counsel of his friends. Just like Job. And just like Jesus. People who love God give ungodly advice all the time. We don't mean to. We're growing. We're growing. So we have to be careful carefully consider what others are saying to you. A fifth step in peacemaking. Speak with your deeds. Let your actions talk. Those who live their lives in dedicated submission to the Lord will have lives that are adorned with good deeds. Do you know people like this? Their faith is not in talk only, but you can see it in their lives. And those deeds stand as a testimony to the faith that is real. Verse 11, David challenges Saul. He says, hey, don't just consider my words, look at your robe, right? Consider the outcome of my life. Verse 11, see my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there's no wrong or treason in my hands. You see, David did not merely speak with his words, he spoke with his actions. He didn't just claim to trust the Lord, as we all do, but he trusted the Lord. Those are two very different things. They're very different things. David was proving himself to be a man of God, not just by what he said, but but by how he acted. He was proving to be a man of godly principles. And the same should be true of us, especially when we are being sinned against. And even as we relate to our enemies, oh, that we would live lives that are blameless to adorn the gospel. If I think about my conflicts, I think about my relational problems, I'm, I'm like never blameless in them. I'm always contributing sin to the problem. That's how we tend to do it, right? Yet, let us be a people. There may be some significant problem, but resolve that you will not be contributing to the problem. Strive to be blameless. Our self control, our meekness, our gentleness, our love should commend our lives to others. If you think about the last big fight you had with somebody, I mean, think about it. It'd be really hard to have that fight if the other person was very, very gracious the whole time. (laughs) Can you imagine? stop being so patient. (laughs) Stop being so kind to me. We can do it. I know, but it's much harder. see, there are numerous times in the Old Testament where, in the New Testament rather, where you have this beautiful picture of writers speaking about women who are called to adorn themselves, not with the external stuff, but with the internal, right? I was looking at those passages today and it was a beautiful picture They're they're calling women not to merely adorn themselves with the braiding of hair or with jewelry, but with self-control and a gentle spirit, a quiet spirit with hope in God. That's not a call that's unique to women. It's just an illustration that's unique to women. The call is for all of us to adorn our lives like that. In Titus chapter 2, verse 10, he says, But showing all good faith, so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God. Just think about that phrase. You can adorn the doctrine of God. That word adorn means to decorate, right? You know, you can get this. You can decorate your face. (laughs) I I need some work, right? You can adorn a Christmas tree, decorate a Christmas tree. But think about this word picture. Our conflicts give us an opportunity that act in a way that decorate your doctrine. Right? Say whatever you want about your faith. Why don't you decorate it with your deeds? Dress it up. Draw extra attention to it. Let's prove the mercy that we've come to know by acting on it. So that the world may not just hear of our doctrine, but see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Number six, give a respectful rebuke. This deserves much more attention than the half page I can give to it tonight. But let me just say this, Christian humility and Christian meekness does not mean that we never confront sin. In fact, it means we often confront sin. David's humble respect to Saul did not mean that he just rolled over and took it. He didn't do that. God often calls us to confront sin. This gets complicated. Jesus confronted sin, but he didn't confront every sin. And that's what we see here. It doesn't mean that we confront every sin. Sometimes we're called to overlook sin, but always for the sake of love. Never for the sake of self-love. You never overlook sin because it makes your life easier. You overlook sin because of love for the sinner. That's why the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. But sometimes we're called to exercise the biblical ministry of rebuke. Some of you are like, man, I married somebody who thinks that he has the biblical gift of rebuke. He rebukes me all the time. And I'm sorry to hear if that is true. The Bible gives us clear guidelines on how to do this. And we can't work through those tonight. But at least here in verses 12 through 14 we should notice that David was willing to rebuke, to speak out, not vindictively, but respectfully, perhaps perhaps even compassionately. But that brings us to the seventh point, that finally we see David appealed to God. We see this in verses 12 and 15. David reminded Saul that their lives, just like yours and mine, brothers and sisters, are lived before God. Look at just verse 15. He says, May the Lord therefore be judge. Can you say that in your conflicts? Let God judge us, right? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between you and me and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David was remembering the Lord. And as we've said many times in this place, that changes everything. When you bring the Lord into your problems, like David did, it has radical implications for how you live. When you stop and bring God into your, not not like he's not in it, God's always involved, but when you orient yourself in your life and your behavior to the Lord first and to the problem second, it totally changes how you fight. And it totally changes how you disagree. And it totally changes how you respond to the person who just lied to you. For one thing, it propels us to obey. Most of the time, God feels the farthest away when we're in the midst of our problems, doesn't he? That's been my experience. And the strongest problems, that's when I feel God the least. That's when things feel the most hopeless. That means that in those specific moments, we are tempted the most to forget the importance of obedience. We become tempted to take matters into our own hands. We become our own lawgivers. David reminded himself, and he also reminded Saul hey, God's watching. And God's got something to say about this. And he will say something about this, he will judge. When we appeal to God's justice, what happens is we, if you, if, you're ha- if you have any honesty in you at all, you become more inclined to act carefully in obedience before the Lord. But it's also important to notice how David thoroughly trusted in God. He trusted in God so much that it actually supported his heart in the circumstance. Perhaps you've had one of those relational conflicts where you felt like you're heart had been ripped out of you you just did not know how you would go on how could you ever trust somebody again you, you said, I'm not going to open up anymore I'm never going to trust men again David gave his heart to the Lord the Lord is so skilled at handling hearts men and women we botch it like crazy we do terrible things and say terrible things to each other but the Lord is merciful and tender and gracious. David was able to resist sin. He was able to avoid killing Saul, not simply because he had a bunch of knowledge or had some self-control, but because he had settled confidence in God. That God was working, that God would judge fairly, and that he would deliver at the right time. So often our sin flows out of panic. A panic that assumes God's not in control. I got to sort this out, right? Have you ever had that? God is not working fast enough. My husband is not changing fast enough. He needs my help. Don't worry, I'm here. Holy Spirit, I got it, right? I'll just tell him how terrible he is. I'll give him a list of his sins. that's like 48 pages long and that'll fix it, Right? That's what we do, isn't it? My husband's not changing fast enough. God must not be in control. He might need my help convicting my husband. So I'll tell him over and over again. You see, so many of our sins are avoided when we bring God into our circumstances, specifically by trusting Him, by trusting His Word. When we let his word guide our actions. When we let his promises actually comfort and quell our anxieties. When we let his presence dispel our loneliness. When we let his justice repair our wrongs. It's an important point to see in all this what David was doing. He was leaving room for God's wrath. Had Saul sinned against David? Yes have you been sinned against? Yes, I know. Did David have legitimate reason to be angry? Absolutely. God was angry too. Did Saul deserve vengeance? Yes. Did Saul deserve to be killed? Yes. But David's confidence in God prevented him from sinful anger because he knew that God's righteous anger was on the way. Romans twelve nineteen, beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. God never gives you permission for vengeance. Vengeance is his. Don't steal it. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I like reading about World War II. And I remember reading about Marines who were fighting in close combat in the Pacific on the island of Peleliu. And at times, it was a horrific, it was a horrific campaign. And there were times in the campaign where they would have artillery support from big guns out at sea, from the warships. So sometimes they'd call in an airstrike on their enemies, which, depending on the situation, in my understanding, sometimes it'll only take a few seconds, right? They'd be sitting there looking at a position, they'd call, and here would come the help. They wouldn't need to fire in those three seconds because they were waiting on a massive fireball. It's on the way to bring the judgment of the United States on their enemies. That's how we refrain from sinful anger. You wait. Wait for God's wrath. God will bring justice, vengeance is His, He will repay. You just got to wait for His timing. All of the wrongs that you have ever seen and ever committed will be made right, either on the cross or in hell. David's confidence was in the justice of God and that permitted him to let Saul escape. He was leaving room for God's wrath. Justice would come, not in David's time, but in God's time. Justice is always slow for us, except for when it's Directed towards us, right? And then it's always too fast. I want to say a word about bitterness here. I've been thinking about bitterness some recently, and I think that this is the key to overcoming bitterness. Here's how bitterness works in our lives we become bitter when we take on the role of judge and avenger. When we become the judge and the avenger, here's how this works someone sins, so we become judge. We assess the evidence against them, and we declare them guilty, and we become avenger by doling out the punishment, right? Changing the way we treat them, the way we think about them, our disposition towards them. But James chapter 4 verse 12 says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Bitterness and sinful anger will disappear when we allow God to just take his seat at the bench. He will bring justice. He's the judge and he's the avenger. He just doesn't tell you his timetable. Here in chapter 24, we see David totally at peace. He's got 3,000 men chasing him, 3,001. Yet he's totally at peace because of his theology. He had done some theological thinking. His doctrine had teeth. He had become convinced that he could trust the Lord. This is the secret sauce of forgiveness. He saw how he could return good for evil because he knew the Lord would vindicate him in the end. And that's all throughout this conversation. But let's just take a few final moments to consider Saul's response the response of the reprobate. Those are seven things we saw David doing as he moved towards making peace. We could say much more. But how did Saul respond in all this? His response is a little weird, I think. It's kind of conflicted. Notice a couple things about his response. Verse 16, he responded by weeping. Anyone ever gotten emotional in your conflicts? Does it mean they're sincere? Sometimes. Sometimes no. Got real emotional. Verse 17, it seems, he seems even to admit his guilt. He said some of the right things. Ever seen that? Someone's emotional, someone's saying the right things. Verse 18, he then commends David's righteous actions. He admits, I was wrong, you were right. That happens sometimes. In verse 20, we see the most shocking. David, Saul even admits that he realizes that his ungodly life is a lost cause. That his reign will end that he is actually headed full on into destruction. In verse 20, he basically admits the futility of his ways. Now, I addressed on Sunday how verse 19 showed us how Saul was just totally baffled by David's mercy. And we asked the question, what kind of king gives mercy to his enemies? I mean, that's what, that's what Saul's doing. He's just he's floored about what kind of king gives mercy to his enemies? Well, that king was the king the likes of which we have never seen before. And we saw how that led us to, to Christ. But what do we make of Saul's response here? I think that what's going on is we're seeing a powerful contrast between the gospel of mercy and the way of the world. The world doesn't know what to do with love like this. The world does not understand anything but an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's all they understand. So when you get worldly counsel, it's going to be some variation of that. You might have some Christian language. They might even have a Bible verse in it. But it'll be some variation of that. Saul functions according to the ways of the world. He didn't have a clue of how to respond to mercy like this. And I think he's taken back by mercy. I think what we're seeing Saul do in these verses, he is feeling the effects of burning coal on his head. You remember that in Romans 12 as well? To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Now I know you sometimes wanted to put some burning coals on that person's head. But this is how you do it, right? Not with actual coals, but with your mercy. If we ran ahead in Samuel, if we did a spoiler alert and looked ahead, we would learn that this this is not real repentance. Saul is not repenting here. He's saying the right things. He's doing the right emotions. But this is is not godly sorrow. This is worldly sorrow. In chapter 26, we repeat the same scene. Saul chases David. David shows mercy. David confronts him. He doesn't kill him. I mean, this is not true repentance. We could talk a lot about that. But we'll have to do that some other time. But what do we learn from this? How do we wrap this up? I think one of the things we can learn from Saul's response is only God can change the heart. This is really helpful for us in a lot of ways. You cannot change your grandchild's heart. You cannot change your spouse's heart. You cannot change your children's heart. So often, I see in my life and in People who are in difficult situations, I see them trying to do the right thing, trying to show self-control, trying to show mercy, trying to repay uh, good for evil, trying to leave room for God's wrath. And they'll come back to me and they'll say, hey, I did what you told me to do. It didn't work. (laughs) He's still an idiot, right? It didn't, it didn't work. He's not changing. But you see, that's not the point. We don't obey God in order to change people. We obey God to please God. If you focus on doing the right thing in order to fix your marriage or to change your spouse, you know what's going to happen? You're just going to be more frustrated, and things are just going to get worse. You're going to be disillusioned and bitter because only God can change hearts. Which brings us to the next point that we need a redeemer, not just an example. Saul had in front of him an incredible example of righteousness. He had the coals heaped on his head. He had the mercy. Shouldn't shouldn't he have converted? He was seeing a picture of Christ, literally David, right? Yet it wasn't enough to save him. This is such a good reminder to us. Brothers and sisters, you do not simply need to know how to deal with conflict. You do not simply need to see how other people deal with conflict. You need a redeemer. You need somebody to change you, not to tell you what to do. You need a new heart. You need more than law. We need more than just do this, do that, and it'll fix your marriage, right? Behave like this, be merciful. We need more than that. That's not enough. We don't just need to be told what to do. We don't even just need to be shown what to do. We need to be made new. The only hope for change is to be born again. It's the only hope. We don't need some heart reform. We need heart transplants. But when we're sinned against by non-believers, when we're sinned against by believers, We need to remember that this person, just like me, needs Jesus. All of a sudden, your heart has compassion for your enemy. But now this has brought us full circle. We live in a world where we face all sorts of relational strains. But in 1 Samuel 24, David is showing us how those who have encountered the mercy of God become compelled to give it away to others. Jesus goes so far to say, if you don't forgive, God will not forgive you. Because people who know God forgive. That's what happens. So when people sin against you, when they disappoint you, when they mistreat you, when they slander you, when they abuse you, when they lie about you, when they gossip about you, when they hurt you, when they ignore you, when they slight you, when they yell at you, here's what you do. You focus on pleasing the Lord. You obey Him at all cost. You then you give extravagant mercy to that person. Use the measure that God has given you. Use that measuring spoon. All right? You'll have plenty to give away. And then finally, leave the matter to the Lord and go on your way. There's more than that, you know, but that's the big picture. Give it to the Lord, show mercy, and go on your way. God will take care of it. Father, as we come... To, conc- to close tonight we ask that you would help us to have wisdom to how to deal with our broken relationships help us to see and tap into this fountain of mercy that Christ has shown to us make us people who are reconcilers and eager to display the love of Christ in our problems help us as we seek to do this and remind us that our security is not in how good we are at reconciling but in how successful Christ has been on the cross. And to him we give all the glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.